Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Last night, the Vancouver Park Board approved public consumption of alcohol at seven beaches as part of a pilot program, which will run from June 1st to September 4th. Now, the Park Board also voted to allow public drinking permanently at 48 parks uh, across the city and, and further proof that nothing happens too quickly in this in this town. That took a two-year pilot project to get us here in 20, 2021 and 2022. Now, at the same time, uh, the park uh, approved... Uh, drinking, of course. They also looked at uh, what you should be wearing at public swimming pools. They actually had to talk about a swim attire policy. Now, you have to ask yourself, why do public officials have to be debating swim attire policies? Uh, you would think that would be pretty obvious. Well, your opinion changes when you hear Park Board Commissioner Tom Digby, who recently spoke to colleague Joe Bennett last week and described how one patron entered a local pool facility. Take a listen. Well, I mean, you get the uh, occasional person who uh, tends to come in, you know, rather perhaps underdressed. Uh, I I guess there is reference to uh, a known uh, person who likes to wear a a sock uh, and, and not on his foot. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we have to have elected officials actually debate and discuss a swim attire policy. Joining me on to discuss the new policy changes is Scott Jensen, Commissioner of the Vancouver Park Board. Scott, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, as always. Thank you so, for having me. Lots to talk about here. We've got uh, a couple of big policy announcements. Let's start a little uh, with the uh, issue of attire at at, at uh Vancouver Park Board uh, pools uh, and community centers. First and foremost, um, how difficult was this to come come up with a policy? Honestly, it the the staff came to us with a really thoroughly thought out uh, report that really covered a lot of the bases in in my perspective. And so, you know, going through it, I think it was very important for the board to. Uh, listen to the public, which was was great to to hear the the different speakers uh, share their uh, experiences using our facilities, uh, and then uh, listening to to what they said and and, and sharing our thoughts around the table uh, to really come forward with a uh, a unanimous decision to accept this um, to make sure that we were uh, really listening to the public. Though we did amend this policy to make it a a pilot project so that we can review the results of this uh, policy and look at whether or not it it can be permanent next year or whether or not there needs to be adjustments to ensure that you know those that uh, are marginalized or feel marginalized within our community uh, feel supported and feel accepted uh, in our in all of our aquatic uh, facilities mm-hmm. and just to clarify uh, swimming attire would be bathing suits swim trunks uh, t-shirts and shorts a burkini a swim hijab 
a rash guard and wetsuit. Um, and, and I guess uh, uh, in regards to what they obviously don't want to see is anything that can get very heavy when you're in the water, uh, which would include jeans and sweatpants. Staff also, to my understanding, said that uh, exposed breasts would be permitted, which I think was already there based on law, but you wanted to put it in writing? Yes. Yes. Well, and again, this um, uh, this policy does not supersede uh, pre-existing policy in regards to um, that issue. And again, so uh, you know, this is specifically for uh, identifying you know uh, appropriate swim wear at our pools, uh, not about uh, you know whether people can and cannot swim uh, topless. Uh, I'm just curious. I quite, quite, find it quite fascinating that elected officials have to have this conversation. A lot of this should be common sense, should it not? Well, it, it should be. And, and really what it does come down to is ensuring that there's consistency across all of our facilities and that as a board that we're, we're taking on these difficult decisions to ensure that that's not left to individual uh, attendance at each and every one of our pools. Um, and I think that, you know, this is kind of what I was elected for. And I want to make sure that uh, the staff within our facilities feel supported and feel that uh, when they need support, that the board is there to uh, come up with policy to help support them in their day-to-day operations. And let, let's talk a little bit about uh, alcohol and uh, at the beach. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. The park board added seven beaches to the public places in Vancouver where adults uh, can drink alcohol now. That is correct. And I, and I would really direct uh, listeners to go in and look at the uh, outline that was uh, shared with the, the board last night, just for real clarification about where and how people can be responsibly uh, consuming alcohol on our beaches. Um, you know, the, the common thread is that this is just going to turn uh, our, our beaches into, you know, some sort of all-night party. But again, uh, that's not what we voted on yesterday. Um, you know, our, the, the, the policy is very clear. And again, this is a, a pilot project. So we're really um, hopeful that this is going to be successfully received across the city. And that um, the, the successes that we saw with the pilot project for drinking in our parks which was overwhelmingly successful, that we'll see that same success with our, our drinking and beaches um, uh, pilot project. So right now it's Spanish Banks, uh, Jericho Beach, Locarno Beach, Kitsilano Beach, Second Beach, um, the beach at New Brighton Park, and um, a loca- location on the south side of Trout Lake. Uh, and that, when you add it with parks, I guess that increases it up to 40 uh, that are now where you can drink. And I guess that's from 11 a.m., to 9 p.m. Um, in regards to the hours for legal drinking at beaches and parks. Have you had any complaints so far, any concerns from residents about um, just this pilot project? Certainly we have heard from uh, the re- uh, some residents. It, actually, yesterday it was uh, really interesting because at the board we uh, we heard from Commissioner Digby the concern about one of the sites uh, not being actually adequately close to a washroom facility. Uh, we ended up having two speakers um, who were actually going to speak specifically that to that park in regards to how it didn't meet the criteria. So we ended up removing that specific park from the uh, permitted areas to uh, consume alcohol. Um, but outside of that, the, the the concerns that we did hear were broad-based in regards to uh, alcohol consumption uh, in and of itself. So that uh, 
alcohol is a, a carcinogen and therefore uh, individuals should not be consuming alcohol. Um, the direction that the board took was to um, accept um, the recommendations from staff and to move forward with this pilot project and to make the uh, parks permanent, uh, again, to recognize the desire from residents to have uh, access to their parks and enjoy them uh, responsibly in a manner that makes sense for them and not to have the park board limiting their opportunities in these parks and at these beaches. Uh, will there be a time, do you think, where the park board could actually sell alcohol during specific hours of the day? Uh, part of our Think Big strategy, which was uh, presented to the board earlier in the year by Commissioner Howard, uh, is to explore that opportunity. So we are looking at uh, uh, the possibility of including alcoholic beverages uh, at our concessions. Um, and so this is, a, again, this idea that we really want to provide a lot more service at our, uh, at our facilities and, and really make uh, the experience at a beach a lot more welcoming to, to all different types of users. Uh, out of now, again, I want to emphasize this does not include glass bottles at our beaches. I, again, I want to go deep into some of these finer details so that individuals understand, you know, we did listen and, and the park board uh, staff that created this uh, uh, report to us did a great job of, of listening to uh, concerns and from the community on, on what really makes sense in our in our beaches or at our beaches. Uh, uh, do you know off the top of your head how much revenue the park board actually generates roughly? Is it ten percent, twenty percent of of their budget? Uh, oh, for our budget, uh, we're responsible for about fifty percent of our budget. Um, so what we bring in as revenue goes towards the fifty uh, percent of that goes towards uh, investment back into our parks and, and our facilities. So as as a board, um, you know, uh, we've been really looking at ways to uh, help improve those bottom lines so that we can reinvest that money back into our uh, infrastructure and so that uh, we can address the the crumbling. Uh, facilities that uh, you know, we inherited and that you know the city's had to deal with for the last 50 years. Well, I, the reason I said that is just uh, the summer hot, summer months and uh, selling alcohol, I'm sure, would help uh, on the bottom line, that's for sure. They can make lots of money at the Canucks well, game and a Lions game based on what we pay for alcohol. I'm sure the park board uh, would like some yes. of that revenue, too. <laughs> exactly. We hope to uh, dig into your pockets this summer and have you enjoying a, a, an uh, whatever you like at our concession stands. Again, we don't just sell alcohol. You know, ideally, we're going to hopefully sell some alcohol, but you know, there's a lot of great services being provided at our concessions right now, but certainly this will be a value add. Scott, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. There's been a lot of conversation recently around the Vancouver School Board. Uh, on this program, we talked about the ongoing issues surrounding the relocation of Ideal Mini School. There's been conversation around potential school closures, uh, surplus property at the school, school liaison officers, budgeting. There's a lot uh, going on uh, at the Vancouver uh, School Board. Joining me now is Victoria Jung. She's the chair of the Vancouver School Board. She was elected in the 2022 municipal election and works in environmental consulting and has board experience with the Environmental Managers Association. 
Association of BC. Victoria, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a first-time uh, board chair. I uh, just got elected, as I said, uh, last October. There's a lot of things going on at Vancouver School Board. I was just listing off uh, some of them. So let's go through some of these issues. Let's uh, touch first on the issue of the ideal mini-school. I know we've been following that story on this show uh, over the last week or so. That's a school that has about 120 kids. And there has been conversation around uh, moving the students at that school to Churchill, which has over 2,000. Um, we did have Jen Ugama, who's the Ideal Mini School uh, PAC chair on this program a couple times last week. Uh, she did speak to us on, on this issue. Take a listen to what she had to say uh, in regards to why uh, the Ideal Mini School is important and why it should remain at the present location. When I'm not fighting for my children's education, uh-huh. I work as an architect. And I can attest to how important buildings and the built environment are to the success of whomever is occupying the building. It's my entire profession is focused on this. And for the core values of the ideal program, a small environment is essential. Having said that, if the school board had a plan that would accommodate ideal in a small environment, we would be open to listening to that. But they have zero plans. That is Jen Ugama from the Ideal Mini School PAC uh, speaking to us last week. Uh, And I know in the past there's been conversations about this is an operational decision, not at the board level. Uh, But you are also an elected official. You have a a lot of sway because ultimately uh, the buck stops with elected officials. Um, Your thoughts first and foremost, is there a solution here somewhere that can be found that can accommodate these students and parents and their concerns? Absolutely. So Ideal Mini School is actually a district program that is in the location it's in now. However, um, it is it can be moved because it is a district program. And I just would love to clarify that the reason why it's moving is to accommodate other school-aged children in the neighborhood and within that school community. And, and part of board policy is that we need to look at the, the quite often... Those will, some community members will feel as though uh, things may be unfair, and, and we we sympathize. But we also have to look at the great, the bigger picture. And our policy says that we need to keep kids within that community in in community schools. And so we want them to be brought back to their neighborhood schools, especially the kids who currently are in elementary school, going outside of their catchment. Mm-hmm. So the intent of this is to move that one program into Churchill, which allows for currently thirty seven. Uh, elementary school kids to return to their neighborhood school and also 20 um, kindergarten students who will be starting in the new year. And I, I just also want to want to clarify there, um, there are over a hundred kids currently in ideal mini school program. Mm-hmm. Uh, next year, there'll be less than a hundred uh, currently enrolled. And, and a part of this also is that when uh, grades uh, nine or sorry, 10, 11, and 12, um, those students start to take courses in the high school at Churchill. And mm-hmm. so um, being able to, uh, they're adapting as they get older um, in those grades. And so this is, this will be uh, perhaps easier for those ages, but we do intend, um, I mean, the Vancouver school board are experts in education and they've done this before they've moved programs. So, but what about the core concern? Like, and I, I understand where you're coming mm-hmm. from, um, but parents are also saying the environment itself works for our kids. Uh, and I don't think they'd be out protesting and talking to 
people like myself, if they were, were concerned, uh, if they weren't, weren't concerned about that environment, that that environment changes when you move to a school of 2,000. Is there any way where there is middle ground where you can find a smaller, quieter Absolutely. environment that, we're, that would work for, for these parents? I do. The change is hard. Change is extremely hard. And we've seen that in, in other programs and other schools. And, mm-hmm. and we acknowledge that there, the current, uh, the current program will be put into, um, logistically will be in the building in, uh, an area and in a fashion that adheres to the mini school, um, guidelines. We don't intend, um, to, to cause harm here. Mm-hmm. This is to accommodate, a larger group. And so, you know, we, we, we look at equity, we look at our job in through many different lenses and, um, yeah, unfortunately it, it changes hard. However, the, the Vancouver school board right now, um, staff are looking at ways to accommodate and to listen to all of the families and the students. And there has been a lot of engagement, um, staff have gone and spoken to the students and I'll say thank you to the ideal mini school students because they have come up with a lot of great ideas and they've provided a lot of feedback and all of that will be taken into account to come up with the solution. And so this was announced not long ago. Um, and the school board staff are looking at exactly what the picture looks like, uh, moving forward moving for forward. September. Let's touch on the other issue of school liaison officers. There's been a lot of folks who said, look, we, we do not like the way the program has operated in the past. At the same time, there are a significant amount of people in this community, your community, that are very supportive of the school liaison program. Give me a sense of where we're at and what the school liaison program will look like moving forward because it has been uh, a lightning rod for for a broader societal conversation around around policing and everything else. Give me a sense of where we stand with school liaison officers in Vancouver and what it'll look like, the program itself. We acknowledge this is a sensitive topic um, and our intent to bring it back and, and something that we, we heard a lot from parents was that there was a gap after the program was removed. So the intent of the reimagined program is to look at the engagement report that was done that was quite extensive. It spoke to many different groups um, from the Indigenous uh, population, BIPOC. We, we took all that into account and through the recommendations of the report, all of those recommendations have been looked at and are currently being discussed between the Vancouver School Board and the Vancouver Police Department. And so those range from um, all sorts of different training, from uh, sensitivity training and youth, youth services training to um, unbiased training. And then we also looked at optically what that looks like. So will police officers be wearing uniforms? Will they, um, will they be driving police cars? So all of that is being considered. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, currently, um, we are in the process of the Vancouver school board staff and the Vancouver police department staff. They're creating that MOU, um, to build on that program. Um, would a police officer carry guns or is that part of the conversation as well? You know, I can't speak to the police act and I believe that they have rules around, um, what police do when they're on duty. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll leave that to the police experts. Do you th- I mean, it's an interesting conversation because I, I, there's lots of folks who would call this show and say, look, we should have school liaison officers. Others, as you've said, are quite concerned in regards to uh, uh, certain uh, groups that have perceptions of police that may be different from others. And I understand that. And those concerns uh, in many cases can be legitimate as well. Um, but at its core, we will have some sort of school liaison officer program within these schools and that will remain 
That is currently the direction it is going, yes. Uh, Victoria, let's talk about the, the, one of the issues. And I was a an old Vancouver school board reporter, and this is a long time ago, the early 90s. And, and budget time uh, would come around, and there's always significant challenges in regards to, you know, where those dollars are going to be spent. Um, I know you're going through budget process. Now, where are we right now in regards to budgeting of the Vancouver School Board? So we have currently had many meetings uh, with both stakeholders and the public around what our our uh, budget is looking like. We will approve it next week. Um, so we are looking line by line uh, and and seeing where where we can. Uh, reallocate and also address some other um, large programs that we have. For example, we offer a food program. It feeds thousands of kids in the city day, uh, each day. And we recently, uh, a generous grant from the ministry um, gave us a lump sum, which we'll, uh, we'll get for the next three years. So because of that, we're able to use it to maintain and to grow our current program. So that's also something um, we're working on through the budget process. But now, budgeting comes down to enrollment. Uh, and how is enrollment? in Vancouver. Is it uh, sort of a slow and steady decline or is it increasing? We keep talking about density and trying to get more families in Vancouver. What has enrollment been like overall and, and how does that impact budgeting? So enrollment in uh, the city has been declining since about 1997, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing a, an increase in the population. However, uh, school age children and youth um, are in decline. And so because of that, uh, school uh, school age children that are coming to our public school system are declining, which means uh, decreased funding. So we're having to also manage that with our budget. So does that mean, uh, in regards to just meeting your budget targets, um, are there going to be cuts just because of that? Cuts in what? Well, just in regards to the overall budget. I mean, do you have, uh, you know, I find every year when I used to cover the Vancouver School Board years ago now, there would always have to be savings somewhere, maybe cuts in, 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 in operations, in sure. specific programs being on, offered. Yes. Yeah, so, so, and and we asked staff to come back and report on how we can manage uh, our structural deficit and and what that would look like. And so, it it may be um, consolidation. It may be closures of 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 programming um or sorry relocating i mean it it is a it's a struggle it's a struggle to make the amount of money we have work we're dealing with a large budget but we also have 50,000 kids in this district and so it is a little bit of a hiccup here and there um but it you know the the board is working together and it is uh monday night we will make a lot of decisions um is it, are there, but is it going to be tough? I mean, are you, do you have the, even a surplus or even extra money if, in regards to perhaps deferring some of the challenges that are before you? Yeah, so we, we're in a massive structural deficit, um, millions of dollars, and, and our board policy says that we, have to, we are required to have a, uh, a surplus and so we don't right now. Um, so we're we're currently working against board policy. We will balance the budget this year. Like that is our intent, and and you know that won't happen until next Monday. But there's the last few boards um, went through a large amount of our surplus, and so we're in the process now where we unfortunately have to look at everything with a fine tooth comb and rebuild that surplus so that we are adhering to our board policy and we're also uh, looking at the future and not just in the moment um, but we're looking at what it what it's going to look like next year and for the next 20 years mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, it, we, you're talking about budget challenges. You're talking about, well, you do have 50,000 uh, kids that go to school. At the same time, you're seeing a slow decline in regards to school-age children, uh, which can impact budgets. You still have lots of property as well. Uh, there has been talk in the last little while, last few weeks, in regards to surplus land, potentially. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth Annex, I think, was one that, uh, that has been in the news recently. Is there a desire for, for the district to um, get rid of surplus or what they deem as surplus land just to sell it off if it's not needed at this point? This is a really controversial topic. I think um, I, I, I can speak for myself as a trustee and, of course, the board have had conversations around it. Mm-hmm. We need to look at what it's going to, you know, we're looking to densify the city and current enrollment shows a decline. I don't know what it's going to show in 50 years. And so we have made decisions, the, the past board have made decisions to uh, long-term lease properties and to try and accommodate for what that looks like in the future. Of course, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so we just have to set it up so that um, we are taking all of that into account. Mm-hmm. The Queen Elizabeth Annex surplus um, you know, was, was a tough decision, and, and we're working through also, uh, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the French school district in the, in the province, but they, um, they have shown a great deal of interest in that, and so um, they're looking at properties all around uh, the province to, to build on their school district. And so that was, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces with Queen Elizabeth Annex, but after looking at the, the enrollment and neighboring schools, the decision was to deem it surplus. And so our next step is to, um, to look at the disposition process. Victoria Jung, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. And I understand you had my colleague, uh, the Park Board Commissioner Jensen, on earlier. So shout out to him. Yes, you had. we had him on. There's always lots of local issues to talk about as Park Board or School Board or City Hall. Uh, it does not end. Victoria Jung, thank you so thank much for your you time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, recently, the BC Real Estate Association and uh, various uh, housing organizations uh, called on Victoria to establish a permanent housing roundtable uh, to address the challenges of the housing crisis in Vancouver and throughout this province. They wanted to get uh, the municipal, provincial, federal and Indigenous governments uh, working together uh, and have a permanent panel that would look at some of the challenges that are there when it comes to providing affordable housing for the residents of British Columbia. Joining me to talk about the issue is Trevor Hargraves. He's a Senior Vice President of Government Relations, Marketing and Communications at the BC Real Estate Association. Trevor, thank you for joining us. Thanks much for having me today. Uh, why is there a need for this roundtable? And we've discussed these issues around housing for a very long time. Why do you think we need this permanent organization? You know, I think it's important to note right off the top, government do consult. They do meet with groups and talk to them, but it tends to be very linear about specific things. Uh, what we're wanting to see is a big roundtable, a roundtable that's drawing from expertise of, of profit housing, of nonprofit housing, Indigenous voices, all kinds of groups, but very carefully chosen to bring their own expertise to the table so that government aren't left to their own devices having to solve these issues, but better draw from the private sector's expertise and work collaboratively. Uh, that implies that the government is a other, and I mean, by government, I mean the provincial government or even the municipal government is ignoring some of these groups, uh, whether from the private sector, Indigenous communities, um, uh, other advocacy groups. Are you, are you saying that these, the government is, to a certain degree, ignoring Uh, some of these groups? I would say that they view housing as a crisis. 
and I think we all do. And the EB administration in particular has been pushing very hard and it should be very much commended for doing so. But in moving very quickly, they are at times skipping doing their due diligence. They're not properly consulting. They're not making sure that new policies don't have unforeseen consequences. They're not taking their time to walk and, and talk to the right groups before they announce these things. So it's it's not that there aren't new ideas. Uh, I think the real problem here is that we just need a process to be testing these ideas before they're announced, before they go public. So these announcement that we, announcements that we heard from Mr. Eby, uh, his housing minister, Ravi Kailan, do you think they're a bit of a bull in a china store in regards to here's a shiny new announcement, here's what we think the problem is, here's how we're going to solve it, but they haven't dealt with the BC Real Estate Association or other groups? I mean, it does seem, from my understanding, from what I'm hearing from you, is that uh, the government is not doing enough consultation, that it is just sort of a one-way conversation at this point. There, There is consultation, but what we want to see is much more holistic consultation. So using my own organization as an example, the BC Real Estate Association, the government does talk to us, but what we would like to see is more thorough discussions. So it's not just us, it's a host of other organizations, and so that we have time to both analyze policy and provide written feedback, but then to collectively gather. Uh, a good example very rarely have I ever been invited to attend anything where nonprofit organizations have their policy people at the other side of the table to be sharing their perspectives on things. And by working more holistically, at the end of the day, we can beta test new ideas and make sure before it goes public, it's, it's much more sound. So it's not that they don't consult, it's that it can be done in a more thorough manner. What does your organization tell government in regards to making um, housing affordable and that there be more housing, that there be an increase in supply. What do you, what kind of advice have you been giving the government? Well, the two things that we were long fighting for that I'm very happy to see come into effect, number one, identifying the fact that it is a supply issue and that we don't have enough supply. So to the government's great credit over the last few years, they've really turned their lens to addressing that. You know, Prior to that, it was issues of potential foreign investment or money laundering or, or issues that, not to say they, they aren't existent within the market, but they're not the driving force. The driving force of affordability here is lack of supply. Uh, the, the other aspect that we've really been pushing them on is around municipal engagement and showing leadership to pressure communities to recognize that no matter what neighborhood you live in within this province and within this country, a housing crisis is a housing crisis from here to Newfoundland. Your neighborhood, your community is not exempt from that. And municipalities need to move faster with their approval processes. They need to move faster in being accepting of the fact that they have a role in this in a national scope and really trying to push back against that nimbyistic perspective of not in my neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, to really get communities to address this collectively. I just had the uh, chair of the Vancouver School Board on the program prior to uh, our interview, and uh, Victoria Jung was telling me that uh, they've got they're dealing with their pre- the budget presently, and uh, they have over fifty thousand students, but. Uh, they're they're seeing a slow, long-term decline in Vancouver of kids uh, since 1997, and they're actually looking at perhaps um, uh, you know get rid- getting rid of some excess or surplus land and property. And it's not a, across the whole board, but they have some challenges in regards to budgeting in regards to what they have. Um, can government do enough? Because because it seems to me that on the policy side, yes, they could probably do a few things. But we didn't get into this crisis in you know, a year or two years. This has been a multi-generational walk into oblivion, and not just here in BC and other parts of Canada as well. It's going to take a generation or two to get out of it. Is Am I wrong in my assessment? Or do you think we can do it faster? 
I think it's certainly going to take a handful of years. And, you know, a, a desperate public are always looking for there to be one magic bullet idea that's going to solve the whole issue. It, it, that is never going to be the case. I think what you need to be doing right now is staving off the price increases and then really trying to level things out so that over time, as you have inflation and wages grow, those prices start to moderate. But it, uh, it's a real challenge. Credit to the provincial government. They've been treating it very seriously and coming up with a lot of new ideas our perspective is that the private sector, the nonprofit sector, there are many voices out there that have a lot of ideas to also contribute. And rather than just leaving it to policy people within a given ministry, 40 different groups all working collaboratively, we take this just as seriously as the government does. And there's a lot of ideas that aren't being adequately heard at this point. Um, is it, I mean, when, when you talk about supply, um, it, is, seems, it seems to me that there's a generational change that has to occur in mindset that the idea of a single family home neighborhood, and I'm not, and I'm not against one, I live in a single family home, uh, but it's going to be impossible, especially in, in the cities like Vancouver, uh, for us to talk about density, talk about supply specifically, and think that we can just do that with single-family homes. It almost seems to me that the broader conversation also has to be about, uh, you know, three-bedroom townhomes, three-bedroom condos, uh, the non-traditional housing um, that we perhaps don't talk about enough, that we cannot do this doing it the old-fashioned way, which is single-family home neighbourhoods. You're absolutely right, and that's something that we're really pushing for, and, and you're hitting the nail right on the head. It's we regard it as the missing middle, right? It's these properties where there's a lot of condos that have been built. They're one-bedroom, maybe they're two-bedroom, but there's a real drought of three-bedroom accommodation right across this province. Uh, and then simultaneously pushing for densification along transit corridors and looking at rezoning and opening up things like secondary suites within a pre-existing home. There's many different ways, and the government are looking at this to their credit and taking some steps forwards, but really trying to take the existing community structure and try to incentivize building more and building really to service the needs of the community in as quick and efficient a manner as possible. Mm-hmm. How uh, confident are you that the government's going to put together uh, a roundtable that has private sector, public sector groups, uh, governments actually uh, sitting down and figuring this out? Uh, I would say it's a challenge because it's a lot of logistics and it's a lot of hard work for them at the end of the day. Uh, I think it's difficult for the housing minister. I think he has 100 people coming at him every day with 100 different ideas. The trick here is not to get lost in all of these different concepts and and, and different ideas, but to have filters for them. And I think a carefully chosen roundtable representing sectoral expertise and, and, frankly, just policy experts within the housing sector I think that is actually something that can help amplify their efforts rather than hinder it. So mm-hmm. while it's extra work, you know, I, I, I think the thing that's really worth noting here in terms of what we were asking for next week, or sorry, last week, this was not a request coming from the BC Real Estate Association. This was a request coming from 10 different organizations within the housing spectrum, uh, organizations that represent both for-profit and non-profit. So this is something that's being recognized as a problem right across the housing continuum. We're all seeing it multi-organizationally. It's a shared concern. So I'm really hoping that he'll be listening to this in the weeks to come. Yeah, Trevor, thanks for your time. Thank you. Let's talk about celiac disease. Now, celiac disease um, is an immune reaction to eating gluten. Uh, and the gluten uh, can be found in wheat, uh, barley, and rye. 
uh, it can trigger uh, an immune response uh, in uh, in your small intestines. And over time, uh, this reaction damages a person's intestine lining and pre- prevents them from absorbing nutrients. Now, there's no cure for celiac disease, but for most people, following a strict gluten-free diet uh, can help manage symptoms and promote um, uh, healing to a certain degree. Uh, but when you follow that strict diet, of course, that uh, is a very expensive proposition. You have to be very careful in regards to what you buy uh, and where you buy it. And today, Celiac Canada is urging the federal government to provide better tax relief for people uh, with celiac uh, as the cost of gluten-free food uh, soars due to inflation. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Jan- Jasmine Sidhu. She's a board member of the Canadian Celiac Association of British Columbia. Jasmine, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jess. Uh, how much of a challenge uh, has the last year been uh, to your members when it comes to just groceries and dealing with the cost, particularly when you have to deal with the celiac? Um, well, what we've noticed is that um, according to a survey, 92% of respondents to the survey are members and members across Canada have indicated that the cost of gluten-free food is significantly more expensive now than it was during the pandemic. And not only has the cost of food increased, but accessibility to gluten-free food for those living on, um, you know, assistance or social assistance is uh, that much more difficult. And by that, I mean access to gluten-free food and food banks um, is very difficult to come by these days. So often people who rely on food banks for food or either going without food or eating gluten, which, um, which is, it's, it's actually poison to their body. Mm-hmm. Uh- now, generally speaking, speaking with forget inflation for uh, for a moment. Just let's put that aside for a second. Gluten free products generally are more expensive than non gluten free products at the grocery store. Absolutely true. And now we can um, tell you that the cost of a regular loaf of bread, for example, just a plain gluten containing white loaf of bread, is three dollars and thirty seven cents, whereas the cost of a um, grocery store brand gluten free bread is $6.97. So that's at least 240% increase for eating the same quality of bread. Um, And that $6.97 doesn't really, I mean, that's the cheapest kind of bread you can eat on a gluten-free diet. The nicer breads would be $10 for a loaf. Uh, You were mentioning the food bank. So you're saying your members and those that are dealing with the issue, dealing with celiac, have been pushed into food banks just because of the cost of groceries? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that those who need to access gluten-free food because they need, they um, had a food bank because mm-hmm. of their circumstances are finding it that much more difficult to get it and likely because donations have gone down because the cost has gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what specifically will you be asking the federal government for in regards to, to, to help for those who deal with the issue of, uh, of uh, dealing with gluten? Well, first, um, the federal grocery rebate is is simply not enough to address the cost of food for those living with celiac disease. So Celiac Canada is going to ask that the grocery rebate be increased to $230 rather than $153 mm-hmm. and $122.50 per child or single supplement rather than $81. However, what we're going to go lobby the government for in May is a change to the way that um, 
celiac disease is treated in terms of a medical expense credit. So what we would like to see is rather than persons with celiac disease going through this onerous process of trying to claim a medical expense credit, which is only accessible to those in lower income brackets, or sorry, in middle income brackets, it's not accessible to those in lower brackets or higher brackets, that we would like to see a federal rebate of $1,000 per person, which is consistent with what other countries do, um, such as the UK and things like that. Um, how successful do you think you can be? I mean, the government's rolled out a lot of programs already. There has been talk about inflation slowly decreasing. We're still not there. It's still a challenge uh, for, for many Canadians. Uh, have you had any indication as to how open the government will be to your request uh, as you go uh, to Ottawa in May, which is um, uh, Celiac Awareness Month as well? Quite frankly, Jazz, I don't know the answer to that question about how receptive they will be. But what I can tell you is this is not an issue that come up just because of inflation and the discussion around the general population about the higher cost of food. This is um, an inequity that exists in the system. And I can speak to that personally, having a 10-year-old daughter with celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And our family decided to go gluten-free to support her and to keep her healthier. And the cost of groceries in our house is, is not commensurate with what regular Canadians are paying to feed their families. So a $1,000 rebate is what I would think would be the minimum the government could give those with living with celiac disease. I'd like to see them give it to families, an increased amount to families who are supporting those living with them, living with people with celiac disease as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there is greater knowledge uh, of celiac now in the broader population? I I would say there should be more knowledge about it. I know that um, 15% of people living with it have been diagnosed with it. Sorry, 15% of people with celiac disease have been diagnosed with it. 85% of people don't even know they have it. And that represents about 400,000 people in Canada who don't know they have celiac disease. So we certainly need to get the message out there that it exists and that... Um, it's, it's something you should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jasmine, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Thanks for having us. Well, it's certainly one of the uh, iconic buildings here in our province and in our city, and certainly one could argue it's also one of the legacy buildings from Expo 86. And if you think about it, it's hard to believe that Science Rule will be 40 years old in a few years, but it definitely needs a little bit of uh, tender, loving care when it comes to maintenance. And today, uh, the province of British Columbia, Premier David Eby, along with Tourism Minister Lana Popham, announced a $20 million investment to upgrade uh, the infrastructure at uh, Science world and of course deal with a a leaky roof as well. Uh, Here is Tourism Minister Lana Popham from today's announcement. This is going to allow Science World to update itself so we can continue to welcome not just British Columbians, but people outside British Columbia who already know that Science World is a destination they want to come to. Uh, Joining me now to talk a little bit about Science World is Tracy Reddy's, the CEO of, of Science World. Tracy, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Jeff. Uh, tell me, uh, what was it like as the CEO of Science World doing full well? The government was going to actually invest $20 million in maintaining the building and at the end of the day, help you, help you deal with some of the, the leaky roof itself. Well, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a great day for, for Science World. Um, it's, it's really um, just the start, though. You know, I, I think your um, previous uh, segment uh, 
noted that um, Science World uh, has been around for almost 40 years, and um, some of our infrastructure is from the original uh, uh, original structure. So, you know, whilst we, our team's done a great job of maintaining it um, mm-hmm. 35 plus years, you know, everything wears out at some point in time, and we're just uh, really um, grateful that uh, the government, at both the, the provincial and federal level, has. Uh, come to the table to help but we still have to we still have a, a about another uh, 50 million to raise to, to uh, do everything that we need to do to upgrade this iconic building what kind of things um, I mean the the building itself the the dome itself and the leaking uh, and, and the leaks uh, have, have caught the attention of, of media today but in regards to the the overall uh, full investment that is required what kind of things need to be done yeah, well, we have um, uh, HVAC systems, um, electrical sy- systems that are, you know, old and in need of replacing. Um, there's lots of opportunities for uh, energy savings and GHG emission savings. That's the benefit uh, if you haven't upgraded infrastructure for uh, 35 years. When you do go to upgrade, you get, um, uh, you know, great savings on that front, too. So this is not only going to help the, the building in terms of fixing some critical infrastructure, it's also going to help our our energy uh, and uh, GHG footprint, too, mm-hmm. which is really important. Uh, I was reading that Science World welcomed over 860,000 visitors a year before the COVID-19 pandemic. Speak to me a little bit about what COVID, the impact COVID had on Science World and, and what Science World is doing moving forward. I'm, we're not in a post-COVID environment yet, even though I, I do use that term once in a while, but yeah. uh, how your organization is just dealing with sort of ramping up once again because it's such an iconic part of our province and for a lot of for students as well. Speak to me a little bit about sort of your post-COVID uh, uh, plan. Yeah, well, there, I mean, there was no question that the uh, pandemic had a significant impact on our organization, like so many uh, tourism organizations. But we have had been um, primarily self-funding uh, up until uh, the, the, the pandemic. So uh, in some respects, we had more challenges than perhaps uh, institutions that were getting additional, you know, more fun- government funding uh, uh, prior to the pandemic. But, you know, I, I, I'm really proud of the team. We, we have uh, uh, pulled through operationally from the pandemic. Um, you know, we're, we're not at the same level of visitors as we were before the pandemic, but we're um, getting, we hope to get to about 90% of pre-pandemic visitors this year. And that's great. But the other, the other thing, that, too, that's important is that we're not just reaching uh, people here through the iconic dome. We also uh, took the last couple of years to, to uh, start up our uh, online capabilities. And now we're reaching three and a half million visitors a year, both on site, online and to our outreach programs. Uh, in regards to the educational component, the issue you brought up, I know I've heard you speaking on the issue of STEAM, getting young people engaged in science and technology. Speak to me a little bit about that education, educational um, uh, component for Science World, because you know I've I've taken my son and many parents have taken their kids for the, for the, for a field trip. But uh, what Science World does is a lot wider and deeper uh, when it comes to getting young people, particularly young girls, involved with science and technology. Yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, uh, um, Jazz. I mean, the the thing with Science Worlds, we're not only an iconic tourism destination. We we have uh, we're an important uh, component of the educational system here in in BC. Uh, again, uh, delivering um, uh, learning science we call STEAM learning science, technology, engineering, art and design, and math uh, programs, um, but through our through our 
facility here, but also online and through our outreach programs. And that's really critical because we know um, we have a, 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 a looming, uh, in fact, in some in some cases uh, today, a talent shortage. And in particularly in these skill sets, it's really going to be important to have more and more kids um, take up uh, STEAM learning and, and, and STEAM disciplines. And we know the key to that is getting that, um, that, uh, that curiosity sparked early, developing confident STEAM learners so they go on to uh, study STEAM disciplines in high school and then in post-secondary. And those are the, you know, most of the jobs of the future will need those skill sets. So it's really important that we have institutions like Science World that are working with the educational system hand-in-hand to develop that talent pool. Well, Tracy, it was wonderful chatting with you. I'm so happy for all you folks over at Science World. $20 million initial investment, more needed. And as you said, uh, you'll be announcing your fundraising campaign moving forward. But a great day uh, for um, what really is an iconic, not only building, but organization uh, here in our city and our province. Thanks so much for your time today. Well, thanks so much, Jazz. Always great to talk to you. Elite female athletes from a variety of sports, including soccer, fencing, and boxing, uh, have called on our federal sports minister to set up a public inquiry into abuse in Canadian sports. They all talked about uh, in the last 24 hours about any further delay would lead to more harm when it comes to uh, what athletes have had to deal with. Uh, many of them talked about uh, their mental health challenges that they have suffered after exposing misconduct. Uh, Sierra McCormick is a former professional soccer player. She testified yesterday as well to uh, this committee of, uh, of uh, members of parliament. Uh, she referred to Bob Barada, uh, former Team Canada and Vancouver Whitecaps coach. Uh, Mr. Barada was sentenced last year to two years in prison for sexual assault against teenage players in British Columbia. Take a listen to Sierra McCormick speaking in the House of Commons uh, in regards to the abuse that she suffered. Take a listen. Yet the worst of the ordeal was not Barada's abuse. Rather, it was realizing that for the decade we tried to report Barada, the silencing we faced wasn't born out of a dysfunctional system, but rather was done with a willful precision. A system where to play sports in Canada meant and means doing so with a deliberate lack of protection from abuse, as well as a threat of retaliation speaking out about it. That was Sierra McCormick speaking yesterday, and it was a moving testimony, uh, not only uh, uh, for those that were there, uh, members of parliament, including the minister as well. Joining me now to talk about uh, the broader conversation about protecting athletes is Jennifer Walinga. She's a professor in the School of Communications and Culture at Royal Roads University and a former member of Canada's Commonwealth World and Olympic gold medal rowing teams. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. Um, the testimony that we just heard from uh, from Ms. McCormick and the broader conversation over the last 24 hours, uh, what impact do you think it'll have? Well, we do seem to be stalled uh, around this. And I think, you know, Kiara really broke the story. She was one of the first initiators of the story around Whitecaps and, and it's gone on for years and years and built, and now, of course, as you described, Berard is in jail and was found guilty for uh, for those crimes. And I think it just feels that it's kind of dragging, and I can see that the desire for an inquiry of some sort is, is growing and escalating because of that. Um, yeah, I think the real gap is 
in terms of communication from Sport Canada. What is happening? What's going on behind the scenes that is changing? Being more explicit about the efforts that are underway. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, when there isn't any communication, people will fill the gaps with their own assumptions. How did we get here? Uh, and I mean broadly when it when, when you talk about sport, um, you know you would think there would be some accountabilities, perhaps not in every sporting body, but some sporting bodies. The fact that you have athletes in so many different sports testifying, uh, where did we go wrong in your mind? Well, I think you know it's exploding in Canada. But it has in other countries as well. Hmm. You know, we're a little, I wouldn't say late to the party because it's not a party, but we're a bit, um, we're not unlike a lot of other countries. We've seen similar waves of uh, rejection of principles and approaches to sport in Australia. We've seen it in the UK as well. So I think it's not new necessarily uh, or isolated to Canada. However, I think a couple of factors have contributed to the awareness building around it. And that's that the athletes have found their voice. They have platforms. Social media has uh, exploded and our access to that kind of sharing access to media has grown as well. But I think it's also a waterfall of, of people coming forward that then help other victims understand they're not alone and can also band together and share their stories. Is this about building stronger, more resilient uh, and accountable sports federation bodies or is this something deeper in your mind yeah that's interesting i thought you might go with uh, resilient athletes which is an approach at times that people want to take and they think oh they just need to toughen up but i'm glad you said sport organizations i do think sport and there's tons of research i've always said canada's you know a real leading research uh, country in this area Tons of research to show the kinds of changes that need to happen in organizations to sport organizations to strengthen them, that our sport organizations has, have operated in some ways um, autonomously. And we aren't, I think we're caught a bit in the middle, you know, we're not for profit organizations, but we're not, um, and we're public sector, but uh, the athletes are really stakeholders and clients, and yet we have members who are also clients. So it is a bit murky but it's nothing we can't solve and there are lots of great models out there across the world that we can learn from mm-hmm. so yes definitely we need to build stronger more resilient more uh, with greater integrity and accountability our organization uh, and how much do you think is it, this is just the emergence of, of women's sport and what i mean by that is you know there's always been that disparity and there still remains that disparity between male sports and and female sports when it comes to professional athletes but you're seeing a rise of the wnba you're talking about um, a women's soccer league um, you're seeing a greater mainstreaming of women's sports we're certainly not there a lot more to do that's for sure when it comes to compensation uh, and many other things uh, but do you think we're generally headed in the right direction in in regards to this and we are not at the inquiry stage yet the government has not gone there yet but in a broader societal conversation do you see think we're heading in the right direction yeah we have to keep our foot on the gas here and hmm. i i love your insight jazz that it it is with the uh, growth of women's sport because what that's exposed is inequity mm-hmm. and that's at the basis of all these issues really is a power imbalance right that certain people control everything <laughs> and no one behaves well when other people have no power or when other some people have all the power so we really equity is a great frame for all of this and until we can achieve that kind of equitable uh, power balance in our sport 
environments will continue to come up against this challenge, I believe. But yeah, I love to see it. I've often talked about the changes coming from the bottom up. Uh, the athletes, and I would say a lot of women athletes, are really taking the lead in this because they're living the the power imbalance and inequities, and and um, and they're articulate. <laughs> yeah, they are. They really are. We've covered the story a few times in different different ways, and I'm always amazed at a their bravery uh, and the fact that they are sticking with it as well. I think that's most important. You got to be consistently in the face of elected officials to get to that point. But do you feel confident that we'll get there? I mean, you, like you said, you have to keep your foot on the gas, but you think we're heading in that direction towards an inquiry of some sort? Of some sort, there needs to be some kind of process, and I do believe that. But there's work being done, and again, that it's not being shared. And this is this is everywhere in the world. You know, we uh, leaders tend to get down to it and want to solve the problem, but they forget to tell people. So I'd love us to call on the government for more. And I wouldn't even use the word transparency because we're using that in a kind of an accusatory way. But demand more clarity, more sharing, more explicit um, demonstration. Even with Hockey Canada would be a great case example. So they've been, the funding's been returned because they met criteria. Okay, well, what were the criteria and in what ways did they meet it? Because then all the other organizations can learn from that model, right? So Mm -hmm. I think it's more about sharing what's happening. And in doing so, that gives the people who are asking for a process um, more teeth, really. They can sink into that and, and have a real dialogue about, okay, well, we want more of that. And we'd love to see more transparency around uh, that kind of reporting, et cetera. I think that would really lead us in the right direction. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, you making time for us and, and uh, for such an important issue. Well, thank you for covering such an important is- issue. You're doing great work. Take care. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.